Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Abdulrahman Nameri. Dr. Nameri is the Section Chief for Bariatric and Metabolic Surgery, Medical Director of Atrium Health Weight Management, and Program Director for the Carolinas Bariatric Fellowship Program. He's an Associate Professor of Surgery and has been in the Department of Surgery at Carolinas Medical Center since 2018. Dr. Nameri is the Secretary Treasurer of the International Federation for Surgery of Obesity, the past president of the IFSO Middle East North Africa chapter from 2017 to 2019, and the past president of the Pan-Arab Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery 2017 to 2018. Dr. Nameri has published more than 55 peer-reviewed articles, over 10 book chapters, and delivered over 100 national and international invited presentations. He's received numerous awards, including the IFSO Presidential Medal in 2017, IFSO Ambassador Award in 2019, Cleveland Clinic Xylany Nursing Institute's Award in 2017, Surgery Residency Teacher of the Year Award in 2015, Best Physician and Surgeon within the SEHA Healthcare System in 2011 and 2013, and the prestigious Abu Dhabi Medical Distinction Award in 2011. Prior to joining Atrium Health in 2018, Dr. Nameri worked at the Sheikh Khalifa Medical City under the Cleveland Clinic Management in Abu Dhabi. During his nine-year tenure, he was the founding director of the Bariatric and Metabolic Institute Abu Dhabi from 2009 to 2018, the founder and lead surgeon champion for the ACS Nesquip Middle East Collaborative established in 2016 to 2018, founder and surgeon champion for the ACS Nesquip, as well as the associate program director for the first ACGME-1 accredited surgery residency program in the Middle East in Abu Dhabi 2013 to 2018. On top of that, he was also the founder and fellowship program director for general thoracic and vascular surgery from 2010 to 2018. He was an adjunct staff at the Cleveland Clinic's Endocrine and Metabolic Institute in Cleveland, Ohio, 2011 to 2018, and an adjunct associate clinical professor of surgery at the United Arab Emirates University, 2013 to 2018. Dr. Nameri finished his general surgery residency at Huron Hospital, Cleveland Clinic Health System in Cleveland, Ohio in 2004, and his fellowship in minimally invasive and bariatric surgery at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri in 2005. Dr. Nameri, that is an incredible bio. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, I'm happy to be uh, your show. Well, we, we greatly appreciate you taking the time. Uh, just the question that hit me off the top of my head, how did you settle into North Carolina? It sounds like you've kind of traveled the entire world, have worked in a capacity uh, across many different continents. How did you get to North Carolina? Uh, you know, as, as you know, many things in, 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 in life happen through personal connections. So um, I was looking to come back uh, to the US uh, for personal reasons. And it just so happened that uh, one of my mentors from uh, the fellowship at uh, WashU, who's the chair of surgery here um, at Carolina's Medical Center, was recruiting uh, for, for, for someone to come uh, here and it just worked out at the same time. That's, I'm guessing that's Dr. Matthews, is that right? Right, yeah, Brent Matthews. Uh, great, great guy. And uh, Dr. Mary, I'm actually really excited to meet you. I've heard so many incredible things about you. I'm surprised we, we haven't spoken uh, much before. Um, you know, one thing that Alan and I are really curious about was, um, you know, looking at your bio, you've been a leader, you know, in bariatric and metabolic disease, um, with a particular focus on surgical quality, you know, you've, you know, led Nesquip programs, 
and all that. Um, just curious, where did that passion for surgical quality come from? Sure. I mean, I can I, I can tell you it's 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 about trying to learn and trying to improve uh, yourself and try to serve the patients better. You know, quality improvement you know allows you to know if you're doing well. I'll tell you, you know, one of the historical uh, figures of of quality in surgery. Not sure if you if you've heard of Dr. Codman before. So Dr. Codman, you know, lived in the Boston area you know, at the turn of the last century, he died in the early 1900s. And when he was in practice, he had a habit where when he operates on a patient, he will uh, write the patient's information on an index card and he will call the patient a year later. And he would not consider that the operation succeeded unless the patient a year, la a year later tells him that, that they have improved. And through this process, he was able to to identify that when you do shoulder surgery, patients actually do worse. And the reason was at the time they didn't do physical therapy. And, and the whole idea is about not doing something and, and knowing that what you did is best, but actually following up. And when there is a bad outcome, trying to recognize what things can you do to uh, identify things you could do better and what can you do uh, to prevent it the next time. I, I think this is, this is the, the, the gist of it. You know, when you get into that story, it's probably not surprising that a lot of your interest in your work has been about how do we improve quality outside the operating room? Because it sounds like your, your vision for the patient journey goes much beyond what happens in the four walls of the hospital. Yeah, and I think in particular, I mean, this is, this is true for many surgical disciplines. I think when you look at metabolic and bariatric surgery, Obesity as a disease is associated with a significant bias and stigma. So the American Medical Association identified obesity as a disease only in 2013. Many patients, many healthcare providers still, you know, look at obesity as something, something that the person has done themselves. They look at inability to lose the desired weight with or without surgery as a sign of failure. Yet when you look at other diseases, be it type 2 diabetes or cancer, when the disease is progressing, we actually escalate care. We never hold the patient uh, responsible. So if someone has worsening diabetes with their A1C going up, we put them on insulin. We don't tell them, oh, you need to get this under control. If someone has even recurrent cancer, we find ways to treat it. And if, if it recurs aggressively, we, we look at the disease. This is what's fundamentally different about metabolic and bariatric surgeries that until today, patients are held uh, responsible for things that's beyond their control. And, and that's what we need to do as, as programs to try to um, remove this uh, stigma and bias and try to demystify metabolic and bad surgery. I know 30 years ago, the surgery was not as safe as it is today, but many people are still stuck in the outcomes of metabolic and bad surgery from 30, 40 years ago. You know, everyone has a different story for how they, I guess, land in the specialty they, they do. Is there a particular reason why you ended up in bariatric and metabolic surgery? I actually uh, uh, did not want to be in bariatric surgery, to be very frank. Uh, I wanted to be a minimally invasive surgeon, and 
was exposed to bariatric surgery somewhat during fellowship. But then when uh, I took a job at UCSF in Fresno, I was I came across uh, Kelvin Higa, who's the reason why I decided to uh, to to work within the specialty, and 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 I think this is this is true for many people. I tell my kids, I tell the residents, in life, it's not about uh, wanting to do something and going at all costs to do that thing you you've you've desired to do from the beginning. It's about trying your best at what comes across and being open-minded and realizing that sometimes what you've intended to do is actually what's not best for you. And you never know unless you're open-minded and you try what comes across and see if it's, if it's better. Yeah, I, I really love that. Um, you know, Dr. Mary, from your bio and some of the research that we've done, you know, it seems pretty evident that mentorship is something that you're very passionate about. You're leading the fellowship program at Atrium Health as just one example, but then also at other societies as well. Why do you feel like mentorship is one of the you know, important core values to hold and, and why are you so passionate about mentorship? Many reasons. One of them is what got me here is people taking interest in me in the past and realizing over time that most of the skills we have in healthcare, especially in surgery, are transferable skills. And it is not that someone has this innate gift of, you know, uh, being a great surgeon. No, it's, it, it comes through, you know, deliberate practice. This is a coin coined by, by Anders Ericsson, but it comes through specific things, meaning uh, designing a, a program to take someone from point A to point B. I'll give an example. So there's been studies to show that if you take a, uh, a surgeon operates, but their specialty is not, let's say, bariatric surgery, and try to take them through cases, but then you take a first or second year resident, show them videos so they can develop a Mendel model, put them in the dry lab, and spend a rigorous time trying to show them, they could outpace that surgeon. Hmm. And the reason is because it's not about an innate gift. It's about... A, a well-designed, structured program to improve someone's skill with a coach, which is the, 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 the mentor in, in this case, and specific goals in an educational environment. And, and, and in the U.S. and in many places, surgical training has not necessarily been very educational in the past. Um, yes, it's hard work, long hours, but it's not only about hard work and long hours. I tell the fellows in our program, we are not interested in graduating someone who can sew very well or uh, can, can perform the surgery technically well. We're interested to graduate a thoughtful physician who understands the disease, under, understands the bias and what patients go through and is not dogmatic about the approach of taking care of patients and is willing to learn across the way, change their mind, and they act like a scientist. A true scientist will not care if at the end of the experiment, their theory was wrong, but they discovered something new. And this is the whole point, is to be open-minded and to be willing to, at the end of what you thought was going to be the outcome, if the outcome is different, to accept that, okay, I was wrong. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Jim Merritt, when, when you're the, uh, the attending now, right? So like, um, you know, you're in the operating room, you're the most senior um, surgeon, and I'm guessing it can be hard to be reflect, 
uh, reflective on how am I doing technically? Am I getting better? If you're the resident, you know, they have you as the attending to kind of give them feedback and help them get better. But when you're the attending in that, that operating room, how, how are you finding ways to get better technically when it's often just you? You know, you're, 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 you're absolutely right. Working with trainees helps you improve because um, there are things you do that you don't recognize unless you watch someone else doing it and you see where their struggle. And then it, it helps you yourself. But I can tell you a story. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, Kelvin Higesh, you know, sent me one of his videos of a patient. Uh, we talked about the patient and he wanted me to, uh, to comment about what he was doing. I mean, I learned most of what I do in particular from him, but it, it shows his thought process and how, where he has re reached in, in this level. He is humble enough to ask someone else to look at what he did uh, to understand. One of the things we do a lot is, is we, we try to watch our own videos um, to see how, how we did. Because at the time of the operation, you cannot be critical of what you did because you're not looking at things uh, uh, you know, with a hindsight. And, and this is what, what most surgeons do, which is you know, having a morbidity and mortality conference where you discuss what happened and see how it improves. And by the way, uh, Dr. Codman is, is one of the first people who introduced the concept of having a, a morbidity and mortality uh, conference, looking at, at a, a bad outcome and trying to, uh, to see what you can do next time to improve it. Amazing. I love Dr. Mary. I didn't realize you were such a, a student uh, of history and surgery, but, I, but I'm learning so much. It's amazing. Uh, I, I did want to shift back towards um, kind of your, your interest in that the broader patient journey and, and outcomes. And so, you know, one of the things that, that we've been working on together is, um, you know, capturing patient reported outcomes across um, the bariatric surgical journey. And, you know, looking at the, the broader healthcare system, you know, orthopedics, for example, has been collecting PROs for a long time. Um, it's been a more recent advancement in bariatric surgery. Uh, why do you think it's particularly important to collect, start collecting those PROs in bariatrics? I think it's important because, frankly, it, it does not matter what we think the patient's experience was. What matters is what does the patient think about how their experience? You know, if you look in, 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 in psychology, this is even a, a complicated matter. You know, it, it is known in psychology that we live two types of selves, every one of us. You experience something, so that's, that's your experiencing self, but then you remember the experience. And it's that remembrance that matters the most. Hmm. It's not actually what you experience, it's what you remember of it. So if, if you broke your leg and you've, you had a lot of pain at the time you broke your leg, that, that memory of the pain haunts you. Not the pain, the pain goes away, your leg is healed, it's now 20 years later, but if that memory is haunting you, it's not the pain that's haunting you, it's the memory of it. So, so many experiences our patients go through can scar them or it can be a very positive experience. And, and today, I'll give you an example. So 30 years ago, if someone had had a gastric bypass, the chance they would die was four in 100. Today, the chance of someone dying after bad surgery is one in a thousand. Wow. So what made us go uh, from four in a hundred to one in a thousand? Many things. But today we have reached a level where uh, we could talk about patients having surgery without narcotics. Mm -hmm. We can talk about uh, uh, patients 
waking up from surgery, they have small incisions, no drains attached to them. They can drink as soon as they wake up. But if that same patient comes to the room and finds a chair with handlebars they cannot sit on, they find a small gown, or they hear an insensitive comment, all that is not important because their experience is going to be, is going to be miserable. If they find someone who uh, 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 judges them because they think they've reached this weight because of what they've done or judges them because uh, they've had a previous surgery, so they think this surgery is only also not going to work, then, then we're not doing the right thing. And unless we hear from our patients how we are doing, we're not going to improve. So I, I know in orthopedics, when they think about patient-reported outcomes and, and measuring the patient experience from the patient themselves, we hear a lot of uh, ideas around, um, you know, functional outcomes such as, um, you know, when can I, um, you know, walk again or, or walk without pain or being able to walk my you know, daughter down the aisle for a wedding and things like that. Um, from a bariatrics point of view, what do you tend to see as being the most important patient-reported outcomes around, like, this was a successful, you know, surgery and recovery. Like what, what matters to, to a bariatric patient? You know, I, I, I won't uh, uh, pretend that I know uh, all the answers, but I can tell you things I've learned over time. Not having complications is very high on the list. Hmm. Not having pain is also very high on the list. And uh, patients want to live a normal life. There's no definition to what a normal life is. They don't want uh, this decision of having surgery to change drastically what they did before they did the surgery. And, and I think w- one of the things that, that the patient report outcomes allows you, especially if it has a feedback loop with educational materials, is you know many have surgery and they think that the way you lose weight is by food intolerance and restriction. Matter of fact, Many, many healthcare providers still call our surgeries restrictive. And the reality is people lose weight because the surgery changes the metabolism, changes hormones, changes someone's hunger, satiety, regulates their blood sugar, and it makes it easier to get control over the obesity from the perspective of how much calories you, you, you put in. And I think, you know, the patient report outcomes allows, number one, an educational component. I mean, today, none of us, I mean, the, the, the other day I was, I was trying to find where the battery was in my car. And I'm not going to call someone. I'm going to go to YouTube and I'm going to, you know, put my car's model and say, mm-hmm. where's the battery, right? And, and sure enough, I got a video of a guy showing, here's the battery in your car. You do this, do that. So, so, so similarly, I mean, Patients who come and have surgery, they don't know what to expect. And what the patient report outcomes offers is at the front end, an educational tool that someone could do at their own time. Um, even if the team told them, you, you forget, but you learn the most when there's something interactive, you do it on your own, at your own pace. Um, and then at the back end, uh, the person can tell us how they feel. And, you know, the problem is, most people who, who will tell you their feedback is people who had a, a negative experience. Mm. Not everybody who had a good experience tells you their feedback. But if you get feedback from everybody, then you, you'll know collectively if you're, if, if you're doing well or, or not. Mm-hmm. And actually, Dr. Namari, one of the efforts that you've put in place and really championed 
in order to collect more feedback from patients, both on the, the positive end of the spectrum, as well as I'm, I'm guessing the, the negative end, uh, and also working in tandem with providing education back to these patients who have uh, reported certain outcomes. Traditionally, PROs and patient reported outcomes were collected via paper and mail-in surveys and had, you know, frankly, poor compliance. And Atrium Health actually implemented CMOSMD, uh, the digital patient engagement platform, first with uh, HPB with uh, Dr. Vahidi's surgical line, uh, but now you've adopted and really championed it for bariatric surgery patients as well. Again, drawing that patient reported outcomes with the education, really guiding the patient through uh, their experience from end to end. I'm, I'm just curious, how did you hear first about the technology? I think just just through our department because we've been we've been um, uh, using it as you stated in, in HPV, there was an interest to see which which uh, uh, sections are interested to uh, to partner with the department and look at this and and for us, I mean, our patient population are are very savvy. Most of them get their information from the internet anyway, so um, it just it just made perfect sense for us. Right, and, and was that a natural fit? Like, what motivated you to bring digital care? Than to your patients. I mean, you can see it everywhere. I mean, it's it's rare today to see someone without a smartphone. I'll give you an example. So, so we have our own closed Facebook group, and it's because many many patients go to Facebook, but we 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 want them to. I mean, I'm not putting uh, you know any advertisement for Facebook, but we're we're we want something that is an ecosystem that we can control, right. that has the information we're interested. For people to have, and it's something that we could actually uh, guide the discussion in the right way. It doesn't matter which platform it is. But what's important is to is to make sure that that the channel passing the information back back and forth doesn't have false information, doesn't have uh, biased information. It's a great point. I'll tell you, Dr. Mary, when we first started Seamless, gosh, um, eight nine years ago, a lot of people, you know, asked us, "Hey, why don't you just?" you know, create a consumer facing application and go direct to patients. And a, a key reason why we, you know, partnered with providers like yourself is, you know, what we don't want to do is deliver information that conflicts with what their care team is telling them. Um, or, you know, if, if you're going to engage a patient on these platforms, your provider can only monitor you if they're, you know, bought into the platform and have access to it and all that. So from day one, it's been really important for us that we, we do partner with the clinical team so that it truly matches, you know, the, the pathway you're putting them on. So I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things that we've heard uh, about is, you know, yourself and your team have been very forward thinking about, you know, the shift towards um, same day bariatric surgery for, you know, eligible kind of patient populations. How new is that concept in bariatrics and, and kind of what, what sort of motivated your team to, to look into that? So, uh... I mean, I think it's 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 relatively uh, uh, new. It's more common maybe in uh, procedures like sleeve gastrectomy, uh, much less common in procedures like uh, gastric bypass. I think COVID was was a, a significant uh, uh, player. You know, we we recognize that that now you know, coming to a healthcare facility is is not such a desirable thing. And now, you know, with with COVID, there's there's a a tremendous backlog of of uh, surgical procedures to be done. There's issues with staffing across hospitals in the U.S. and and you know our our specialty has reached a level where we've made advances where we are actually able to do surgery without narcotics for most patients. 
Um, and then you add to that the, the, the virtual care platform that you, we utilize at Atrium Health. Then you, you have a story building that, that can allow you to, to offer some patients ambulatory bariatric surgery. And our, our goal is to be very thoughtful about it. So, you know, uh, be selective in, in, in who would, would get this. There has to be some buy-in from the patient and some interest. They have to have someone who, who's um, willing to watch them with us. And then we, we use, you know, digital technology to, to, to watch them at home for that night. And then we, we do a video visit with them the next day uh, to make sure. So, so the period uh, where they go home until we do the video visit the next day uh, is the period that we have a lot of, uh, you know, belts and suspenders built in to, to, to make sure that the uh, 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 care is, is, is not affected. Yeah, it reminds me, we have some partners where, you know, they're doing same day colectomies and other procedures that they, you know, historically have never done um, same day. Um, but part of their pitch to the patient is, hey, you know what, um, you're going to go home the same day. Um, but if you do, you know, you have to um, do your digital check in on seamless. We want to make sure you're doing okay your first day home and all that. Is, is that part of your pitch right now as well? That, hey, if you're going to, we're going to do this, we're going to keep you safe by monitoring you the first day you go home and, and onwards. Is that, is that part of it? Uh, something, something similar. And, and we have to look at history. 20 years ago, gallbladder surgery was done maybe 30 years ago, open. Everybody had a drain and they spent several days in the hospital. Uh, today, the surgery is done with four small incisions and almost everybody goes home the same day. So um, if you've asked a surgeon 30 years ago that, you know, your patient that you just open with a drain uh, potentially could go home today, they will laugh at you. So, so things that we consider are not doable today are limited somewhat by our imagination and by our, uh, what we can see in front of us. And and we have to have a, a, an open mind about uh, doing things. And, and there are things we can do to allow people to go safely home. And uh, the important thing is to, is to do it in a controlled fashion and, and see whether it works or not. That's amazing. Do, do you think, Dr. Mary, that with the um, increased adoption of, of digital and, and virtual care, um, that it's going to open up you know, the distance um, between you and the patient in terms of, you know, the, let's call it the geography that you can care from. So for example, do you envision more and more patients traveling from further distances to get their care from your team at, at Atrium because they know they can stay in contact with you virtually? Uh, possibly. I mean, that, that could be one, um, one advantage. Uh, um, but the main reason we, we were looking into this is is we, we've heard it from patients that they're interested in, in things that have more convenience built in. So people want to have the surgery and if they're doing well, not come to the office, but, but uh, call you from their phone. I mean, just, just uh, on Tuesday um, this week, I uh, uh, spoke to one of my patients one week after surgery, she was already back to work. I mean, that's not what typically patients do, but she's so motivated. She's already back to work. She's in her, in her office. And, and we conducted the, the, the follow-up visits from, the office, from, from her own office. And you know, you know, some patients are interested in this. I mean, so we've heard from patients also that they're interested in, 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 in having their surgery as an outpatient and if it's uh, uh, safe to, to sleep in their own bed. And at the end of the day, 
you know, the driver for uh, uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy was not that the surgeons wanted to do the training. It was that the patients mm -hmm. wanted to have the less invasive surgery with less pain that involves four small incisions. And in many things, the driver in change is, is, is what, what the patients are interested in. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense. And I think that also speaks to how putting patients first and really having patient-centered care makes the most sense holistically, but then also like you're saying for innovation purposes and driving the ball forward. I'm curious, just bringing the point back a little bit to the, the digital patient engagement adoption. From our experience, successful digital patient engagement requires the entire team to really be bought in and motivated by the solution. And I'm just curious for some of the listeners that we have you know, sometimes the barrier is that change management and getting the team to really stand behind uh, the new innovation. And I'm, I'm curious, how did you corral your bariatric team to really stand behind implementing this technology? You know, uh, I won't pretend that, that uh, uh, you know, our team, uh, you know, accepts every change we make. I can tell you a, a story. In October, November of 2019, we were setting up to do a virtual visit study. And our team felt that this was, you know, crazy idea. You know, how do you just see patients under, uh, you know, virtually? And we can't do this. And and COVID came and it became normal. So sometimes what what uh, what makes change easier is, you know, outside forces mm. such as COVID. But mm. also the most important thing is to not roll something out without explaining it to people. Not roll something out without getting adequate buy-in and, and letting the, the staff know the, the purpose. One of the most important things we talk in our staff meetings and our uh, teammate meeting all the time is, you know, our number one goal is to improve the care of our patients. And if we focus on only the provider perspective or the staff perspective, we sometimes miss what the patients are interested in. Mm. And, and it is important that, that if, if there's something that our patients are interested in, that we, we look at it, try to improve it. And, and sometimes you could present things that might make the way we do things today easier. I mean, you know, one example is, does you know, a, a, a platform like this, where people get more education, you know, decrease triage calls? We don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But maybe that's something you you know we need to look at and 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 the real question is, you know, convincing everyone, which is not easy, to not always think about yourself first, mm -hmm. but involve the patient in that thought process. What would the patient want? Dr. Mary, you mentioned earlier about how um, ideas or interventions that seem crazy today may not be crazy, you know, 10, 20 years from now may actually be the standard of care. I was wondering, uh, do you have any crazy innovative ideas lately that, you know what, might just be the standard of care for bariatrics 10 or 20 years from now? And anything come to mind that seems crazy today? I think, you know, doing most of our surgery as an outpatient is probably uh, one of them. But I can tell you what I would hope bariatric surgery in the future would be. I would hope the model of bariatric surgery in the future be very similar to the model where we have our cancer centers across the U.S., where uh, the team is not led by a surgeon because surgery is not the only 
tool in the toolbox to treat cancer. It's only one of them. And you need to have a thoughtful individual at the helm of the team trying to design the best care for the patient that sometimes might involve surgery, but sometimes does not involve surgery. And, and it will take a long time for this to happen. But, uh, you know, if, if, if this was, was to happen, then we will we'll be able to actually uh, look at obesity truly as a disease and, and partner with other, you know, facets that we don't now, we don't do now, like genetics and, mm. and other things, and try to really understand that not everybody with obesity has the same disease, similar to how some people have stage one cancer, some people have stage four cancer, they don't have the same disease and you cannot treat them the same way. And, and you'd hope that in the future that we will reach that level. Wow. That's actually quite exciting. I mean, I guess that this goes to the idea of, you know, shifting from a, you know, some places have a bariatric surgery institute, but more to a digestive disease or more holistic center of excellence, I guess, is, is kind of what you're getting at. That's actually a really, really exciting idea. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, some places have already done it, but the idea of having, you know, an endocrinologist involved in the team uh, so they don't manage diabetes on their own because one of the managements of diabetes, uh, one of the options is, is surgical therapy. And to step out from the idea of having a bariatric program to having a weight management and metabolic syndrome management center. So uh, uh, you manage weight, whether the patient had surgery or not, you manage the metabolic syndrome, whether they had surgery or not. So, so surgery is only, the discussion should not be revolving around surgery. It should be revolving about the patient mm-hmm. and their disease. Right. You mentioned also kind of the potential for genetic testing and, and, and personalized, personalized medicine being a part of that overall journey of helping to tackle obesity. Are, are you seeing that much today in, in the world of metabolic and bariatric surgery or, or only in very specialized centers? Yeah, not, not enough. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. So, so uh, 40 years ago, if someone presents with a very large cancer in the breast or in the rectum, they will come see a surgeon and get a big operation. Today, the same exact patient with the same disease comes to a cancer center and probably gets chemo radiation, genetic testing. They see the response to the initial treatment, and they might get surgery at a later stage or might not even get surgery. Similarly, 40 years ago, if you told, if you told someone that we're going to do prophylactic mastectomy because we want to prevent the chance of developing breast cancer, you, you will get your license revoked. Today, it's acceptable in, 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 a, in a small group of patients who have such a high risk of developing uh, breast cancer or colon cancer to do a prophylactic mastectomy or prophylactic colectomy. Mm-hmm. We need to reach a similar area in, in, in our specialty where we identify who are the patients who have such a high rate of developing severe disease that we need to act early maybe at a lower BMI range than what we do usually. In addition, we need to recognize which are the patients who have such a high uh, you know, uh, 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 affinity to not doing well after appropriate therapy. I'll give you an example. So today we know that certain cancers are aggressive cancers. Well, how do you know? Because we look at the 
at, at the genetic milieu of the patient, look at the pathology of the of the of the of the cancer removed, and their therapy is not the same like someone who does not have an aggressive disease. But today in 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 bariatric surgery, we don't have that sophistication yet, and and the specialty needs to move to make that. Uh, uh, and I think it's we we're working towards it, but this is one of the areas that that uh, that could improve in the future. Do you think, you know, one of the challenges is that, um, like, unlike cancer, which often presents later in life, you know, issues around obesity can start much earlier in, in the life of someone, you know, growing up, even maybe from, from being a, a child, but it, it's somewhat, I guess, probably controversial in the world today to be tackling obesity sometimes earlier and earlier um, in someone's development if they're a child. Or, is that also how you're seeing it right now play out in clinical practice, or are people open to these, these conversations, even for like, pediatric or adolescent um, situations? I mean, genetic cancers happen in children mm. uh, or, or happen in very young people. The difference is the bias and stigma. Mm. We, we need to, to, to not have, I mean, here, here's the thing. Uh, you have to ask yourself, why is it that obesity patients have such bias and stigma attached to them? is because the disease is visible. Right. Someone has cancer, you can't tell if they have cancer. If they're diabetic, you can't tell if they, have if they have diabetes. If they have high blood pressure, you can't tell. But if someone has a disease of obesity, it's obvious. So you, you can you know, make your judgments whether they're right or wrong, but you can't, among many things. That's, that's one of the reasons. That is so incredibly true. Uh, Dr. Mir, I, I know we want to be sensitive to time. This has been an amazing discussion. I know, Alan, um, if it's okay with you, could we move to the, the fast five? The Let's lightning do it. Yeah. So Dr. Namari, basically the, the lightning round fast five is five questions to get to know you a little bit better for our audience. First question that we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? I think the, the, the book of habit by Charles Duhigg uh, or the book of thinking fast and slow by Danny Kahneman. That's a great one. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Question two, how has an apparent failure set you up for greater success? I think I, I, I identifying that uh, uh, venous thromboembolism is um, something that you could predict and prevent. Initially, we used to think that just some patients develop a blood clot, but we now know that uh, you could risk assess and identify which patients develop a blood clot much better than we thought in the past. Right. Uh, question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? I have to choose from one of those three. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a different option? <laughs> the, 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 the ability to, to read people's minds, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Wait, wait, how, how would you use that? Is there a certain situation that, that's popping up lately? Uh, no, not, not necessarily, but getting people's perspective. Sometimes... You, you, you find people with, with very strong opposition and you think it's just you know, unfounded opposition. But mm. then if you, if you stand in their shoes, you, you realize that they have good reason for that opposition. It might not be what the program needs, but, but they have very good reason for that opposition. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think there's um, so many times where you, you just lack context for, for what the other person's uh, experience is. And if you, if you could truly be in their shoes, you, you might even agree with that. So I think that's a great point. Yeah, I, I also just want to add, I think that's so relevant to the what we've been chatting about today around caring bias and, and you know, not having full context of, you know, some something. And so that that makes a lot of sense.
Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? That outcomes are the same everywhere. Fair, yeah. Uh, last question that we have, Dr. Demary, this is more of a pandemic lockdown related question, but what is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic? Just spending more time with the family. I mean, I think um, if you ask me what's the top three priorities in your life, work is not one of those three. Hmm. That's profound. Was it ever, do you think? It was uh, absolutely at, yeah. at, at a certain stage. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think to, to, during training, there was nothing else in life but work. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, it's amazing how, you know, it had to come to a, a global pandemic to, you know, for the world to kind of rethink their values and, and really, you know, get straight with things like connecting with family. It's, it's really, frankly, amazing. But anyways, uh, Dr. Numeri, I, I do want to thank you for coming on the show today. You've carried a lot of wisdom in your career and you brought that today on the, the podcast and really appreciate being able to be on the receiving end of, of some of that wisdom. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's, it's really uh, uh, my pleasure and, and, and sorry again for not having my video on. I'm in the cars, but I, I really enjoyed talking to you uh, and, and thanks for the opportunity. As long as you drive safely, we're, we're, we're happy. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Demiri. I'm in the parking lot, so <laughs> Great. it cannot well, be safer than this. <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Demiri.